So I'd like to, um, to begin the, the talk, the reflections, uh, this evening by uh, just acknowledging and appreciating the, the practice that everyone here is engaging with. And as some of you are experiencing very well, the, these practices aren't easy. A lot of what we what comes up is is the shadow sides or um, some of our contractions and tensions and difficulties, and so it takes a lot of um, of courage and dedication to to be with that in in the way that people are doing here and, and to just acknowledge that each person here is really doing so much to to be with with your experience and to, uh, to attend to it. So I want to um, explore this evening to explore uh, mudita more. And um, begin this exploration with um, a quote from, from the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh and his understanding of this, of this quality. And he says um, that in his experience, mudita is a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. A joy that is filled with peace and contentment. And it can be interesting just to, to see how that meets us. You know, for some of us in this moment, that may really resonate with our experience and, and for others that may feel like quite a big ask. You know, not only joy, but also joy with peace and contentment. <laughs> Can you make it even more challenging? Or whatever. You know, so just see how that, how that resonates, how that meets us and, and to, um, to be open to that, you know, to, to acknowledge the authenticity of whatever the resonance is whatever your experience is. But I'd like to have that in, in the background of, of this exploration with you, that sense of a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. In many ways, this practice, like all of practice, the first step of it is, is actually um, acceptance. And acceptance of what? Acceptance of the fact that, excuse my language, shit happens. Yeah. Life isn't always wonderful. Or we can put it in a slightly more dignified way. Um, the first arrow that Jenny was, was referring to last night. Now that that first arrow exists, that that experience of challenge, of difficulty, of pain, of things not happening the way we'd like them to, is part of the human condition. And that this acceptance of this fact is, is a really crucial and important step in our process. And mudita and all the Brahma Viharas, they're not ways, they're not um, 
strategies to, to bypass this. Yeah, and not ways of bypassing or suppressing that fact. You know, that, that there is suffering, that there is difficulty in life. There are actually ways of, of increasing our container so that we can we can hold that, we can be with that reality without adding the, the second arrows or the third or the fourth or the one thousand which, if we're honest, we sometimes do. So, actually, ways of increasing that container, increasing the capacity. And as we do that, that acceptance, that increasing of the container is what both allows healing to happen and allows a deep learning and transformation to happen. So, both those... And the opening to the Brahma Viharas, and I'm particularly going to speak about this third one, the, the joy. The opening is um, a real way of resourcing ourselves in that expansion, in that beginning of the container. You can tell I'm going to be a little bit silly possibly today. Let's see. So remembering that what we're really interested in is our relationship to experience. We're really interested not in trying to make experience a certain thing or not be a certain thing, but actually in the relationship to experience, to what is arising in our lives. And so the first question we're asking is, what is the relationship? And then following on from that, Um, How can I let go of the unskillful elements in the relationship and how can I develop and cultivate what is skillful, what what helps me hold, what helps me increase that container? And so this is another way of, of speaking about those ways of looking glasses that I was talking about a couple of nights ago. Another way. What what glasses can I? What glasses am I looking at through? What is my relationship? And then what can I put down? What can I pick up to become more skillful? To be more skillful with this. So, when we talk about bringing appreciation, bringing um, joy, gratitude, all this family of qualities into our awareness, into our practice more. What we're actually doing is we're creating that container, we're creating that balance. That balance between um, the the dukkha, the suffering, the unpleasant in life, and the joyful, the beautiful, the wonder. You know, we're creating that balance. And what's common both in the opening to the difficult and the opening to the beautiful, what what they both share, that opening, is that what we're doing is we're opening beyond our perceived, um, our habitually perceived sense of self and sense of limitation. So that happens in both. This is quite an important point, so I'll repeat it. Yeah, so what's happening both when we open to the difficult, the painful, and when we open to 
that which we're joyful about, the wonder, the gratitude. In both those cases, what we're doing is we're opening beyond the habitually perceived sense of self or limit or capacity that we think we have. So we're kind of taking a little, we're going a little bit further than we think we can and we believe we can. And as I was saying this morning, it's really helpful to notice when we open in that way, what happens? Yeah, what happens internally? What happens in the body? What happens in the heart and mind? Yeah? To notice that, because that helps us really um, absorb that experience in. So to notice how there is that, often that sense of expansion, more space, more ease in the being. And also, um, very much a sense of tenderness, often, and aliveness. A sense of tenderness and aliveness. And sometimes I can even almost feel like too much. Yeah, sometimes I feel like too much. It'd be interesting also to see what that too much is, that tenderness, that aliveness, what happens when we can just hold that a little bit more and, and rest into it. And with that tenderness and aliveness, another thing that shows itself is um, that this direct experience of interconnectedness, direct experience of interconnectedness, of the relational aspect of our being, and that we're not, we're not as separate as we, we take ourselves to be a lot of the time, but we're so sensitive, so impacted. So I want to give an example of this. I hope that it's, it's going to serve. Let's see. So a few days ago, this is a recurring theme, a few days ago I was on the phone with my partner and um, he was visiting some friends of ours in, in, in our town um, and you know we were talking and then I could, I could hear in, in the background, a little voice um, kind of calling, Uncle Nathan, Uncle Nathan. And uh, he didn't quite pick up on it. I said, someone's calling you. <laughs> so he, he went to look for the source of the voice. Um, it's not a very big house. It didn't take him very long. But the source was in the bathroom. And uh, he went in, and I could hear all of this um, through, through, the, through the phone. He went in and, and uh, there was um, you know, Durga, this lovely little girl, four years old, um, and, she's, and she's saying, Uncle Nathan, Uncle Nathan, and he says, yeah, I'm here, you know, what's going on? And uh, she said, I did a really big caca. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly, <laughs> through the phone, you know, through the phone, I could feel that you know, she was so excited, and this huge appreciative joy comes for her, you know, because she's so happy, and I'm so happy that she's just done a big caca. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> and I was also looking forward to, you know, what was going to happen next. <laughs> her dad came in 
<laughs> and said, oh, no, you don't need to deal with this. And uh, took over. I was a bit disappointed about that. <laughs> you know. But just that sense of interconnectedness, you know, that comes up. You know, just like through a phone, through just something so simple. And that joy. And of course, you know, in my... Usually, kaka isn't something that makes me particularly happy. You know, but here, in this context, and with her happiness, that sense of, of interconnectedness, so clear, so profound, actually, so profound. And part of what it connects us to is that knowing that there is a larger context in which we're living, you know, it's a larger context than just my story. Yeah, it's so much of the time, that's, that's the reality, that we, you know, we, we, we're doing our thing, we're managing our lives, and just in, in my story. And then that movement of joy, of appreciation, and the interconnectedness that comes, it opens us to the much bigger picture that's here. It's not just my story, it's not just my personal like or dislike of kaka. You know, it's not about that at all, it doesn't play any part. It's a much larger thing at play here. So, when, when this quality of mudita, and, and it's a whole family of things, you know, it's joy, gratitude, um, generosity is also very closely linked appreciation when that is present then the I, me and mine that um, are so prominent for us really have less power and have less power life becomes a lot less serious and much more enjoyable and again it's, it's something that we know and we experience in small things quite a lot I'd like to give another um, small example of this. Um, this is for quite a few years ago, it's not so recent. Um, I was in India, and I was getting on a train, it was quite crowded getting on the train, and I was wearing um, Crocs, Croc, um, you know, classic Crocs. So I'm getting on the train, it's quite cr- crowded, and as I get on, one of these Crocs slips off my foot, and falls into the gap between um, the train and the platform. And so, you know, I just carry on getting on the train and I think, okay, you know, one less croc. <laughs> I've got another pair of, of shoes somewhere in my, in my rucksack, you know, I'll live. But um, the other people around uh, weren't so willing to let go of my croc. And so this whole operation started of retrieving the croc um, from, from that, and you know, yeah, I can go. But it, it, it included so much creativity and playfulness and some scary moments, including lowering a very young child into <laughs> that gap between the train and the platform, which, yeah, very scary. Um, and eventually, I think it was with that, okay, this gets funnier. <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered this, but I'd actually forgotten it was quite a long time ago. They actually took a stick 
for one of the beggars <laughs> <laughs> borrowed it, they gave it back, used that stick to, to um, fish the croc back up, and I was reunited um, with that croc, and, and you got on the train with my partner, and we sat down, it was like, very, um, so, you know, overwhelmed by that whole experience, and feeling so grateful, and so appreciative of all that creativity and, and goodwill um, from complete strangers, um, and gratitude that that little child survived. <laughs> And then as we were sitting there with that gratitude, we very, it only took a few minutes, we realized that during that whole commotion, um, the, the wallet that was in my partner's pocket had disappeared and was no longer there. And the really interesting thing was that with that gratitude and appreciation, that, that was so strong that the disappearance of the wallet just couldn't create any impact on the being. Couldn't create anything. Yeah, it was a shame. But the, that gratitude, that joy was so much more powerful an experience. And so, you know, bad things happen, but this is where gratitude, appreciation, joy, they are a real resource and they really put things in perspective and context. Yeah, they really put things in perspective and context. And clearly, whoever ended up with that wallet needed it much more than we did. They're clear. And that experience of, of generosity and gratitude and creativity was much more fulfilling than, you know, the, whatever was in there. So it really puts it in perspective. And that, that I, me, and mind story becomes so much lighter as loses its power. So it's really important in this practice to remember this practice, all the Brahma Viharas, and this one in particular, um, it's not a denial of life's difficulties. It's not a denial of the fact that, yeah, you know, it's a shame that our world includes the fact that people need to steal yeah, for whatever reasons. You know, it's not about denying that or ignoring that or making that um, not, not important, but it's a support for us to meet those places with perspective yeah, and with an open heart as much as possible. And it really resources us, really resources us. That's the most important thing for me in that story. And there's no drama. There's no drama. So I'd like to, to offer um, some ways of, of deepening um, this practice, deepening this practice of um, unselfish joy in the whole family. And to say with this that one of the reasons that in all the Brahma Viharas we expand the practice to include um, people that we find difficult or challenging you know, one of the reasons that we do that, one of the benefits in that, is that it, it increases our capacity to be with the challenging. It increases our capacity to be with that first arrow. Yeah? So we're doing it intentionally, both to 
widen our container to have more sense of that interconnectedness and to have that attitude of friendliness, of goodwill towards others. But also, because as we do that, you know, we face that difficulty in kind of um, manageable quantities in the practice, and then we increase and increase and increase. That increases our capacity to then be with um, things that we don't invite, yeah, but happen. Yeah, so that's that's a big part of of why we do this. And another way of doing the same thing is to to bring this practice into those moments when things. Um, are not going well. So to have appreciation, and Jenny touched on this this afternoon, to have appreciation, to find what we can be grateful for, even at times when things are difficult and challenging. Yeah. So it's not just turning towards um, the things that are really going well in our lives, we're doing that as well, but also with what isn't, or in moments when it isn't. Can we then see is there, anything in, is there anything here that I can still open to with appreciation or with gratitude? And, you know, for example, we might be experiencing anger, a very difficult, unpleasant emotion. It arises. And in that anger, can we um, bring appreciation to the fact, the simple fact that we have the capacity to know that we're angry? You know, just that capacity. We have that capacity to know that we're angry. Which is it's huge. It's not, um, it's not to be taken for granted. We don't always have that capacity. Yeah? And not everyone does. And that capacity to know that I'm angry means that I also have the capacity to respond and to attend to the anger, in the immediate if I can, or later, yeah, when I reflect back and work with, with what I've seen through that experience. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is really important. It's the real way that we can deepen the practice. Another way that we can deepen the practice, and I'm saying all of this, and you know, I'm putting it out there because, you know, I've only got you here for two more days, less even. So, you know, I'm offering this out and it may not be applicable immediately and that's fine, but just just to have that there. So another way um, of deepening this practice is um, when things are difficult, to consciously appreciate and recollect the, the beings and um, the factors that are supportive or have been supportive to me in, in this difficult situation. And um, I'm going to give an example of this because, as you know, I like them. So, and this, is, this happened to me a few days ago. I, uh, I arrived on Tuesday morning at the airport in Tel Aviv um, to find out that my flight time had changed and the flight was leaving in 15 minutes. Uh, and I wasn't going to be on it. <laughs> and so, you know, there's moments of panic. 
uh, wondering if I was going to make it to teach this retreat. Um, and then, you know, I got going and I went to speak to people and I was already at a point where I was standing at the counter and it was clear that um, the people there were going to sort me out. You know, they were in the process of putting me on a different flight. And I was on my own and they were dealing with that so I didn't have any choice but to actually turn my attention inwardly and see what was going on in my experience and what I could see was that the momentum was still to be in a state of panic and to also you know, really want to engage them and say to them again what a disaster it was that they changed the flight times and didn't tell me and of course you know, it wasn't those people who were actually trying to help me at that point so I could see that momentum there, you know, the righteousness, the, the panic, the distress, whatever. And in that moment, you know, the practice really comes to the fore without even um, making a big deal. It's just this internal kind of click inside that she says, well, actually, can I actually, instead of going with that momentum, can I actually open my eyes? steady myself and look at the fact that they are doing everything they can to help me. Yeah. They're doing everything they can to help me. And actually open to that. And so it's it's a shift from the momentum of habit. Yeah, it's a shift from the momentum of habit and it's a shift into this um, way of looking to see what conditions are at play. What beings are at play? What factors are at play that are actually supportive right now? Even though this is a really annoying situation. <laughs> yeah. And that shift, you know, what, what it, it predominantly does is it changes the degree of suffering in here. Yeah, because that allows to let go of that momentum of suffering and to actually relax. So, okay, they're helping. I ended up putting me on a flight that left at the same time and went to Heathrow, which was much better than Newton. So, you know. But that shift. And then being able, with that shift, you know, I know myself, I've had past experience. If I'd stayed with that momentum, I would have walked away and at some point I would have felt pretty bad that I hadn't expressed my gratitude to the actual people that were helping me. But making the shift in the spot in that moment actually allowed me to express gratitude and appreciation towards them, the individuals that were actually there dealing with the problem that was not their fault any more than it was mine. You know, I had nothing to do with it. So consciously appreciating and recollecting, remembering any factors, any beings that are or have been supportive to us. And, you know, you can take a simple example of just sitting in a traffic jam, you know, something like that, and then just bringing to mind that, okay, this is really difficult and annoying, but there are beings right now that are trying to solve this. Yeah. There's people right now that are actually trying to solve this. And, and how does that shift our experience? How does that reduce our suffering? And sometimes we can do this in retrospect, in reflection. Yeah, this is also really possible. So something's happened, we haven't been able to stop that momentum. 
at the time, but then we can use our power of memory and reflection and reflect back and bring that appreciation later into our, with ourselves. And so we're doing all of this um, through and with that aspiration that has brought us here. You know, the aspiration um, for kindness, but also the aspiration to see life more clearly, to understand life more fully. And to take it less personally, because we're interested in suffering less. Yeah? So to take life less personally, to identify less. And so, with the context of that ways of looking, the glasses practice that I was introducing the other day, we can ask ourselves questions when we're in a situation, you know. What can I appreciate right now? What can I be grateful for right now? Or what is supportive or could be supportive for me right now, internally or externally, and acknowledging that. So, if these, these group of qualities that I'm calling mudita, calling them one thing, the joy, the appreciation, the gratitude, if, you know, obviously they, they feel good, and I'm trying to sell them to you as, um, as something that's very helpful. So the question might arise, why don't we do this more? You know, or why is it so difficult? And I think quite a few people have expressed today, you know, that it's really challenging. It's challenges. Why is it difficult for us? And I'd like to look at that a little bit to um, hopefully increase our understanding. Why is it difficult, or what gets in the way? And I'm going to share some patterns that are common, but. Also, uh, invite you to explore in your own experience what gets in the way for me. What gets in the way? So, one thing that can get in the way is that um, we're so habituated to problem solve, yeah, and to be efficient, which is very helpful in many areas of our lives. But what it means is that our habit is often to focus on um, what we need to fix or what we need to do. And so then we, we naturally are focused on that and we miss what is beautiful. Yeah, we miss what is joyous. We miss, we miss what, is, uh, what opens our heart. And it's you know very, very useful quality that we have as humans, but it, it's overextended in most of us. So that's one thing that gets in the way. Another thing is um, what is often referred to as negativity bias, that we're kind of programmed to notice more, to be impacted more by things that aren't going well than by things that are. And this is, you know, there's research into this that has shown this. Um, I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's, we need to experience a lot more positive things than negative things in a set amount of time in order to have a sense that, that they were equal. Yeah, so we're much more sensitive to what isn't going well. Much more, much more sensitive to what isn't going well. The third um, 
huge area that blocks us is um, the tendency of the mind to compare and measure. And this is, you know, you can give Dharma talk after Dharma talk on this. It's a very, very strong uh, tendency in the human mind and heart. That way that we define ourselves through measuring whether I'm, I'm the same as others, I'm better at them, or I'm less than. And if you kind of turn your attention to this, you'll see that this happens almost all the time. Yeah, almost all the time. We're, we're constantly doing this. It's a way of affirmation. It's a way of creating our self-identity through that measurement. And it can manifest as um, emotions like envy, um, manifest like in things like judgment, um, lack of self-worth. You know, they're all part of this movement of the mind, part of this movement of the mind and heart. And they're all rooted in aversion and attachment, desire. And in that um, kind of core misunderstanding of separateness, feeling that we're separate. So we're measuring ourselves against others through that sense of separation. They're all rooted in that. So all of these um, block mudita. The good news is that mudita is a wonderfully effective <laughs> Um, practice to, to work with all of these things. So, you know, we're kind of working together. There may be these blocks and we apply the practice and it's a great antidote to, to all these um, comparing, measuring qualities that we have. It's, um, it's not as if it's actually a retraining of the mind. It's a retraining of the mind that we're doing through the practice to, to bring more balance. So if we're talking about the negativity bias that we have of, of being much more impacted by what's negative through this practice of intentionally turning to appreciation and gratitude, we actually rebalance the mind. And they've done research on this, um, particularly around gratitude practices and particularly around gratitude journals. There's a lot of research on that in recent years and showing that I think something like two weeks of people having a gratitude journal, which means spending ten minutes at the end of each day writing five things or ten things that you're grateful for that happened that day, um, has a huge effect on the levels of happiness. So um, Jenny and I share that. We both like the affirmation of modern research to, to the things that the tradition has been saying um, for a long time. But it's very beautiful to see that coming through and how simple it can be sometimes. So it's not easy, yeah, it's not an easy practice, but it's really doable, really doable for us. So I'm going to slow down a bit. Looking at the clock too much. So that's a little bit about what blocks mudita, what gets in the way, and it's really helpful to recognize these patterns in us and whatever are the more habitual for us. And just to know, just so that we know them, that we get more familiar and, if possible, even friendly with them. It's also um, useful to know what supports 
what supports this practice, this movement um, towards more appreciation and gratitude and joy in our lives. So, unsurprisingly, a lot of the, of the qualities that I've already mentioned, um, like gratitude, um, generosity, joy, and also, of course, our old friends, metta and compassion, um, very, very helpful and very supportive in, in really bringing this to the fore and strengthening it in our lives. And it's helpful to remember that all of these qualities, all of these qualities are really rooted in our basic goodness, which exists in all of us, you know, even if we find it difficult to, to believe that. So we all have them, even if they're just a dormant seed. And they're all rooted in, in, in our basic, in the ground of our basic goodness. And in our understanding, at whatever um, level that is, our understanding of interconnectedness, understanding of the fact that we're not separate. And we all have that understanding. We all have that understanding. We all have that experiential understanding. So the, the support, the mutual support of mudita and compassion um, in particular is something we can go into quite a lot. just want to touch on it a little bit. Um, one thing that is um, yeah, really beautiful and powerful is that through the practice of mudita, energy is released. Yeah? We relax, we open, and we have more energy. That energy can support us in acting with compassion. So Jenny was speaking um, last night a little bit about that sense of overwhelm. You know that often we have that sense of being touched, yeah, the quivering or the trembling of the heart, but then we get overwhelmed, and that is what stops us from being able to to act. So the energy that comes from the joy that's both a balancing. And it gives energy that supports action. And it gives resilience. Yeah, it gives resilience in the being. And compassion, and Jenny touched on this also last night, in compassion there is also an element of joy. Yeah, there's an element of joy in there. Um, it's often in that sense of intimacy with others that compassion brings to the fore. You know, we come closer to the other through opening to their pain. We come closer to ourselves through opening to our pain. And there's a, a real sense of um, gatheredness, of even concentration sometimes that comes with that, of joy um, and of harmony. A real, a real sense of that, of just the two coming together and actually being there side by side. Being there side by side. I mentioned this morning, um, I quoted um, one of my teachers who used to say, happiness dies when it's not shared. And um, he was a very, very special human being, but also incredibly human. And 
another thing he used to say, he founded with his wife um, uh, a community for people with leprosy in central India, which is one of the most amazing places I've ever been. And he used to call this place, which is the, the official name is Anandwan, which means forest of bliss. Um, but he used to call it um, a rainbow in tears. A rainbow in tears. And he would say, you know, you come here and what a lot of people see is they see the joy, they see the beauty, yeah, of the rainbow. But what makes up that rainbow is the tears, the suffering of people that are here, as well as the joy, which is the light. You know, the two together create the beauty. Two together create the beauty. And, um, you know, it's a real teaching that has stayed with me um, because the two are so um, uncovered there. Yeah. The suffering, physical and emotional, um, psychological, is, is so out there. And with it is the joy. With it is the joy. And they exist together. And I was um, remembering when I was reflecting on this, um, how for, for many years... When I, I go there every year, um, we hold a work retreat there, and I, I work with the um, I work in the in the in the home for the elderly. And many many years, I would feel how um, in the work there, being with with people who who you know have suffered and are suffering so much, you know, so they've suffered the uh, stigma of the disease, being abandoned by their families um, and then as they age the effects of the disease are creating more and more physical pain and discomfort and it always feels like being in contact with that suffering just um, breaks open the heart yeah? it breaks open at least for me, my heart and then the smiles yeah? and the love and the joy can be felt so much deeper. And then the heart gets a little bit bigger and that armoring around it breaks a little bit more because <laughs> the heart is getting bigger. And that, um, that, that dance between the two, being together, and that incredible sense of privilege actually to, to be present with someone in their suffering, to be present with someone in their suffering and in their joy, to share that degree of intimacy. And that's something that is accessible for us, you know, with others and with ourselves. If we can, um, if we can slowly and in our own way begin to trust that capacity that we have to do that, and that the joy and the pain together create a rainbow. Yeah, they create a rainbow. They can create beauty. They do create beauty. And we know that for many um, aspects of our life. You know, if we think of great art, for example, how much of the great art in our, in our world is, is, a, is beauty that is coming out, both of that capacity to to feel pain, but also the capacity to see beauty and appreciate it.
So that, yeah, that meeting of compassion and mudita in, in tenderness and in aliveness and in that space of the heart that can continue to grow beyond those perceived limits that we have of ourselves, beyond the perceived limits. So as mudita grows in us, another thing that we see more and more clearly is that the happiness of others is actually our happiness. It's not separate. The happiness of others is our happiness. It's not separate. And it supports metta. Yeah, it supports the attitude of goodwill in us. And it supports um, the understanding that the happiness of another doesn't take away my possibility of happiness, which is a lot of the time the delusion that we're in. If someone else is happy, some things are going well for someone else, that's taking away something from me, even the possibility. And the stronger the metta, the more that can dissolve, the stronger the mudita, the more that can dissolve, the stronger the compassion, they all support each other to dissolve that and to understand that it's actually the opposite. Actually the opposite. Happiness of others can increase my happiness. It also connects us to what we actually need to be happy. Grounds us. What we actually need to be happy. Which is often a lot more simple and basic than we might think. And so from these, from these understandings of what we need to be happy and what brings happiness and the understanding of the interconnectedness of our happiness, actually. You know, happiness, my happiness is dependent on yours. My well-being is dependent on yours, and you know, not just yours in the whole, but ours, on a really deep level, a really deep level. As that, that grows, that deepens, we also find ways to act from that, from that understanding. We find ways to act from it. And we let ourselves be moved by metta, by compassion, by mudita. We let ourselves be moved to act and to be in ways that free, free ourselves and free each other. And so I'd like to um, to read um, another piece from my book. And the person who gave me the book is actually in the hall. So I'm very excited. So we can all feel a lot of gratitude to her. At least if you like the stories. <laughs> yeah, feel gratitude anyway. So this is a story that Gregory Boyle tells about um, a guy called um, Speedy. And he's called Speedy because he's very fast. And um, 
he begins telling the story and he says, um, I give credit for most of my gray hairs to a kid called Speedy. And the reason is that Speedy um, gets a kick out of, um, out of risk. And so what he does a lot is that he goes um, in, in the projects in these neighborhoods where they live, the neighborhoods are divided between different gangs. And if you belong to one gang, it's very dangerous to go into the streets that belong to, to a different gang. And he gets a kick out of, out of going into areas um, that are controlled by rival gangs to his own, and then kind of annoying those people, and then running away as fast as he can. But you know, he gets a kick out of it. But of course, it's really dangerous. You know, it's not. It's not a game. And so, you know, he's been doing this for years, and it seems like it's never going to change. And then one day, one day he comes into, um, into Gregory Boyle's G's, they call him G, into his office. And, um, and he seems really kind of, uh, yeah, vibrating with something a little bit different. And he tells him um, of something that just happened to him. And what just happened to him was that he, you know, did as usual. He went into uh, a rival gang's area and uh, bumped into eight guys that then started chasing him. And he managed to to kind of run away. And he was almost out. He was almost. He was on the wrong side of the street from his gang's part of the neighborhood. And while he was there, he bumps into a woman from the parish. He's called Yolanda. And um, I'm going to read from here. So Yolanda knows enough to know that Speedy should not be where he currently is, still on the wrong side of the street. She calls him over. And she says, Come, son, what are you doing here? Speedy, out of breath and panting, lowers his head. You know, son, she says, if anything happened to you, it would break my heart in two. She barely knows him. If anything happened to you, it would break my heart in two. And she says to him, you know, I've seen you playing with your nephew in the park. What a good uncle you are. I've also seen you feed the homeless at the church. What a generous and good thing that is. Then she returns to her earlier refrain, with even more resolve soaked in it. If anything happened to you, it would break my heart in two. Now go home. Speedy arrives in my office, out of breath from this encounter with a nearly perfect stranger. He looks at me and smiles after the telling of this tale. You know, he says, tapping his heart with his finger, that shit made me feel good. That shit made me feel good. And so appreciating the good 
in the other and letting them know. Yeah? Letting them know. You don't need to risk your life to be seen. And it would break my heart in two if something happened to you. I care. And the compassion and the <coughs> there together. A moment, a meeting with a near-perfect stranger. And the story goes that very shortly after that, this young man made a change in his life. He got a job, he got married, he moved out of, of the barrio, of that area. He had kids. And they stay in touch, you know, with, with G, they stay in touch. And this is um, a few years later. He's got three children. So one day they, they get together, Gregory Boyle and Speedy, and um, they're having a meal together and talking about Speedy's life. And Gregory Boyle asks him what, do you, what he does in his downtime. You know, he's working hard, he's supporting his family. What do you do in your, in your um, downtime? And this is part of his answer. He says, you know, the kids begged me to buy them the new Harry Potter book. So what the hell? I broke down and bought it. Now, do you know what we do every night? I sit in my recliner. We turn off the TV. And my three kids read Harry Potter out loud. First, my daughter, my eldest. She reads a whole page. Then she hands it to my son, and he reads a paragraph. Then the baby, with the help from the other two, reads a sentence, but barely. And it gets passed back, you know, page, paragraph, sentence. And I, he starts to buckle, and his voice trembles. I just close my eyes, sitting in my recliner, listening to my kids read out loud. And so again, that gratitude and that appreciation for the simple things. And what a gift in someone's life who's never had a family. To just be there with his children and hear them read out loud. And what a gift to them to have a dad like that. And how much did that moment of compassion and of appreciation. How much did that moment affect this? And then the ongoing, ongoing cycles. So, yeah, these practices aren't easy. And yet, they have such power, such power. And so every moment of your beautiful, sincere dedication here, even when it feels to you like you're not doing this right, you're not doing this well. Every moment that you're here, offering yourself as best you can to this practice, to this path, to this intention, 
makes a difference. It makes a difference in each of us. It makes a difference in the world. So let's just have a, a quiet moment to close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.